Eric Estep here. One of my favorite parts of being a NASCAR fan is collecting diecasts. It's how I got my start on YouTube, actually. To me, a room is not complete until it features shelves of NASCAR diecast cars. It's as good a time as ever to continue your collection or begin an all-new one by pre-ordering your favorite driver's 2022 next-gen diecast at LionelRacing.com or at any authorized Lionel retailer. Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network. So what are you waiting for? Head to LionelRacing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast. The word rivalry is pretty common among all sports. NASCAR has had plenty of rivalries during seven decades of racing, and some have been pretty friendly, you know, like the ones among the NASCAR independent drivers, those without factory support from General Motors or Ford or Chrysler, with payoffs such as stakes and beer and mostly bragging rights among them to say, hey, I finished better than you did this week. Okay, sounds pretty good. Then there have been those not so friendly, those where one driver has put the other in the wall or on occasion over the wall to make sure their rivals knew they weren't happy about what happened the week before. No matter the season, tempers have gotten hot over incidents that happened on the racetrack during those long Sunday afternoons. Sometimes the win was in hand and suddenly another driver took them out to steal the victory away. The beating and banging could be a bit much until finally emotions took over and someone got a bumper to their rear quarter panel and away they went crashing hard into the outside retaining wall and from there well you guessed it it's payback time maybe not that day but somewhere down the road retaliation came and it was just a matter of time personalities play a huge part in fueling rivalry scenarios so many times the wrong thing is said that cute little quip is mentioned in a news clip, and as fate would have it, the two that aren't all that fond of one another are side by side on the racetrack. Paint jobs are scraped, metal was bent, and after spins occur, each driver is in the hunt for the other, ready to make sure the message is sent. In essence, they're just like us on that long interstate highway when they get cut off by the jerk that's speeding and switching from lane to lane. The difference is it happens to them week to week during the long and demanding Cup Series schedule, and they know exactly who's doing it. Sure, it still goes on today, but there were plenty of interesting feuds from the late 1940s through the 1990s that many fans of NASCAR may have forgotten about. So, rivalries among drivers and teams have been a huge part of NASCAR since it began in 1949. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode number 64 of a Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. I'm Jerry Bunkowski, along with my good buddy, Ben White, and we have got a tremendous show. Every show is tremendous, but this is an especially tremendous show because... This is one of those topics that race fans just absolutely love to talk about, and that is the subject of rivalries. Now, we're not talking about, you know, one-off races where, you know, guys got heated or, you know, started pushing or punching each other. We're talking about long-term rivalries where, you know, one driver just never got along with another driver or there was always the, you know, the the, the fighting, the on-track uh, and even the off-track bickering, if you will. And sometimes they would come to blows about it too as well. So we've got a number of, of uh, rivalries, particularly from going back to about the 50s all the way into the 90s. And, you know, when Ben uh, and I were talking about this off the air before we started taping, I was really amazed at the number of rivalries that, uh, you know, Ben came up with. Plus, you know, there's a lot more out there we could probably could have added to this. I mean, rivalries has always been kind of the uh, the heartbeat, if you will, of NASCAR, because 
you know, there's always, you know, the, the competition level where people want to win the race and they're going to do everything they can possibly do sometimes even, you know, maybe bending the rules a little bit, but there's also the, you know, just the rivalry between drivers that, you know, just one guy doesn't like the other guy for whatever reason, maybe, you know, uh, early on in their career, maybe one guy did something wrong to the other guy and that, you know, and, and, you know, NASCAR drivers have almost like the memory of elephants. They never forget. I mean, they could have had an incident, 20 years ago, and they'll remember it, and they'll eventually get payback 20 years later. That's how how rivalries in NASCAR are. So, so my friend Ben, uh, first of all, great to have you on as as always. And oh yeah, you, thank you. You, you. you definitely hit a a home run on this one. I mean, rivalries. You know, I'm talking about rivalries the way I see it. Tell me about you know you've been in this sport for such a long time. You've seen all these rivalries you know develop and manifest themselves. And the, the funny thing is though, and I I'll, I'll, I I've got to ask you this, Ben. You know, a lot of times, you know, these rivalries have lasted throughout drivers' careers, but then after they retire, they become best buddies. They're, yeah. they're bosom buddies. So tell yeah. us about rivalries and, and just well, how, how they played and you know, made a play and uh, made such a significant part, I should say, of NASCAR. Yeah, I think I think a big part of this, Jerry, is the fact that back, you know, back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and that's kind of the, the era we want to talk about today is back in those days, I mean, these guys served as driver. They served as team owner in a lot of cases. They served as truck driver in a lot of cases and mechanics. So they, I mean, the, the, the money wasn't flowing in those days like it is today. You know, you have the, in today's world, you have the the mega shops and the engineers and the, the specialists. Everybody seems to be a specialist in today's world. But back in those days, uh, the specialist was the guy that you went to get someone to look at your ankle. I mean, so to speak, or, <laughs> right. you know, the, the, the doctor, so to speak, these, these guys, they didn't have specialists. They had very limited budgets and, and they had, or no budget, actually, they, you know, the old stories about they go to the, the fruit stands and buy, a, you know, a bushel of peaches and eat peaches all week because mm-hmm. they just had no money. And so they had to protect their ground. They had to protect their equipment. And that's where a lot of these uh, rivalries would start from is the fact they had no money. So they had to protect what they had. And so when you get on a racetrack against a a crafty old veteran, say a Curtis Turner or someone of that nature, and you're a rookie, well, you got to stand your ground. And that's where some of these things came from. And as you mentioned, going into this, the personalities uh, just they clashed a lot of times in those days is and uh, we've seen that happen today and and you know you've seen uh, talking about today type stuff you've seen the Harvicks against the the you know the the Bowmans or if you will uh, hypothetically I mean you see today's guys but there's a lot of the race fans that are following NASCAR today that didn't know about some of these early uh, rivalries that happened in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. So that's what we kind of want to cover today and just kind of let you know it goes all the way back to the very first races of NASCAR history when they were running the old Hudsons and, and Kaisers and and uh, the Chevys and Fords and Dodges and those types of things. It's all emotion. It's what it is. And and when you put 40 guys out on a, on a beach or you put them on a, a short track or a dirt track, of course, everybody wants to win. And then when you get in crowded situations going into some turn and emotions get hot and heated, then that's when those rivalries uh, occur and they're not easily forgotten. And so you put a guy sideways in the wall and the, the, you know, forgive and forget, well, maybe the forgive part works, but not to forget. So, you know, they, they carry it in the back, in their back pockets and, uh, Later on, you just like today, so they, you know, they will they'll pay you back somewhere along the way. So that's been going on for for decades. You know, th- this is maybe an unfair quantifier, but one thing I've noticed about rivalries over the years is that you basically had two kinds of classes of rivalries. And correct me if I'm wrong. Tell me if I'm blowing smoke here or, or what. But I've noticed that some of the biggest rivalries were either between two guys who grew up very similar dirt dirt poor backgrounds you know had nothing uh, you know in, in their their lives you know and they started making themselves a success in nascar but again they were they were dirt poor and they would go up against a guy who had a very similar story or the other part of the, the equation is you had a driver who was dirt poor who was going up against a guy who had money 
and mm-hmm. you know the 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 rich versus the 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 poor kind of thing and i mean am i wrong in in thinking that that those i mean I, i'm being very simplistic by saying this but to me that was kind of the um you know what what in what told me the makeup of rivalries became it was either poor versus poor or poor versus rich. Am I wrong about that? No, I, I think it would probably be more the second one because, uh, yeah, the, the guys that are poor against poor, they sort of related to one another. They could, they had to make their own parts. They had to make do with what they had. And I think those guys sort of respected each other more so, and they'd be a little more lenient towards, getting into one another because they knew what a hard road they had to go against. I think if you had a guy who, who came up the hard way trying to, to race a guy who had the money the guy with the money would, would say, Hey, I don't have a problem putting this guy in the wall that, you know, the, the, the moonshiner, the banjo player, so to speak. I mean, the guy from the, from the deep woods, you know, he'll just have to do it the best he can to make it next week. I got all the money in the world. Wouldn't have a problem putting him in the wall. And that's where the rivalry I think would come from is the rich versus the poor in, in all cases, you know? And so, uh, that's, I think that's where the biggest rivalry comes from, but the guy, the poor against the poor guy, I think they would really respect one another for being a out on the racetrack and, and, and just, you know, knowing that they had to make their own parts and make it, make a go of it themselves. And I think those guys would really respect one another for just how far they had come, you know, to build the race cars. What about guys who, <coughs> excuse me, the guys who um, started off poor, but became very successful and in becoming successful, it kind of changed their persona. I'm not going to get into names. I think you know the, the exact person I'm thinking of. Um, but there have been a number of guys, one in particular, that I'm again, I'm not going to mention his name, who came up dirt poor and became a very major success. And that kind of got to his head. I mean, what about your thoughts about rivalries that developed because things got to a guy's success, uh, got, uh, it's got to his head, so to speak. Well, yeah. I mean, sometimes you get, <coughs> you get those types of people who, um, you know, who have come a long way and they do appreciate where they're, they're coming from or they came from, I should say. And, and they, they've never lost that true North, if you will. And then there's some that, that kind of did lose uh, where they came from and, but when you're talking about rivalries like that, I think they always, it always goes back to where, where the roots are. And, and, but at the same time, it's all about protecting the ground and protecting, uh, you know, maybe never losing sight of where they came from, I guess. And, uh, I think most racers are that way deep down inside. I think they, they realize how hard it was to get to where they are. And, and that's why they protect their ground. You know, they don't like a a young rookie coming in and putting their, their driver in the wall. And it's, it's, it's a deep felt uh, embedded rooted sort of thing inside, Uh, you know, that they just want to protect their ground and, and know that where they came from. And even if you did have a lot of money now that you didn't have it, then it's just, there's a right way and a wrong way. And, you know, just blatantly putting somebody in the wall is just not the way to do it. And, you know, I think you need to respect one another on the racetrack. And I think most people do. There's times when you have a, a streak of heatedness, so to speak, and you just, you know, you, you lose your head or whatever and just intentionally put somebody in the wall. I, we've, you and I both have seen that where somebody gets heated behind the wheel and they go after somebody. And that's always been that way, even back in the very beginning days where, where we see guys who have uh, kind of waited on the racetrack for some guy to come back around. We're going to talk about that today, a couple of those instances. But, uh, yeah, it's it's just crazy how, you know, emotions can take over, especially when you're sitting inside of a race car and things get a little out of the hand. But, yeah, back to your original point, though, there's been some that have never lost that true north and some that maybe have, you know, forgotten kind of where they were, but at the beginning, but that's something we don't want to ever lose. Ben, one of the biggest rivalries in NASCAR was between two of the biggest names, Richard Petty and Bobby Allison. And obviously, you know, both very, very well. You're very good friends with both of them, but there was a point in time 
back, you know, in the, the early to mid stages of their respective careers, where they, I mean, let's face it, they hated each other for, you know, at least on the racetrack. And then they became the best of friends off the racetrack. Can you kind of reflect back on that rivalry and what made it such a unique rivalry? Because, I mean, we always hear so much about, you know, uh, Petty and David Pearson, uh, you know, David and I mean, uh, Richard, um, I'm sorry, Richard and David Pearson or Richard and Cale Yarborough or things like that. And yes, Bobby was certainly a, a big rival as well, too. But, you know, th- there was a real rough time that they had at, at one point early in their career and early in the mid part of their career. And then they became, like I said, the best of buddies. Tell us about that. Yeah, sure, Jerry. Well, October 1st, 1972 is a, a race that really comes to mind for me. And that was when uh, Bobby and Richard really, I guess it came to a head, so to speak, but that was a North Wilkesboro Speedway. Bobby was driving for uh, Junior Johnson, the Coca-Cola Chevrolet. Richard was driving the STP Dodge for Petty Enterprises. And of course, that year, uh, Bobby won 10 races for Junior. I think uh, Richard, of course, won many races for Petty Enterprises, and they were at the top of their game and racing for the championship. And of course, like I say, at North Wilkesboro, they had an intense, intense race that day, and both cars were spoke, uh, were smoking from all four corners of each of their cars and beating and banging is going off. And just, man, I tell you, like I said, extremely intense race. As it turned out, Richard Petty won the, the race that day. Uh, Bobby finished second. But that was one of those races where the crowd actually got uh, involved in the race and you know, as I remember it, uh, one of the fans tried to get into victory lane. And I think maybe it was Richard or Maurice, one of them kind of cold cocked the guy <laughs> to calm him down a little bit. And he was a, rich, a Bobby Allison fan and saying, hey, you know, you wrecked my guy and all that kind of stuff. It, it, it got kind of intense. I had to get the sheriff's department, Wilkes County Sheriff involved and all that. But it was, it was just one of those days that it could have gotten ugly. And, but it was kind of ugly on the racetrack. And like I said, both cars were smoking at the end and beating and banging sheet metal. And, and years later, they became very good friends and they're very good friends today and put all that behind them. And you see photos of the two of them uh, smiling and just, you know, they've had great conversations about the past. And as it turned out, Bobby and uh, Judy Allison, their marriage actually got back together they were divorced at one time and they got back together in part because uh, sadly we lost adam petty in 2000 which which was kyle petty's son who lost his life in a racing accident in new hampshire and uh, bobby and judy were traveling uh, to from alabama back to north carolina had eight hours or nine hours in a car together and they were able to just solve a lot of the problems that had been building for many years and they actually got back together very much because of that car ride going to Adam's funeral. Ironic how things work out, but uh, and sadly we lost Judy a couple of years ago uh, from, from uh, health issues uh, as she passed away. But, uh, you know, it's just ironic how that works out, but yeah, that, that, that was a very, very intense rivalry in the early seventies uh, when Bobby, like I say, was driving for junior and, and Richard for, Petty Enterprises, but yeah, just very intense. And as years passed, uh, the two of them became very good friends. Exactly. All right. We've got a number of rivalries we're going to go through kind of like a, uh, we're going to check them off, uh, off our list here. We got a ton to go through. And I guess the best place to start off with Ben is 19 in the early 1950s when as NASCAR was getting going, so too were a lot of the rivalries and they kind of not only laid the groundwork for rivalries in the fifties, sixties, and seventies that you could even say to, to an extent, they laid the groundwork for the rivalries that we even see today. So, yeah. you know, I mean, a number of uh, rivalries in the fifties, let's Let's hear about some of the ones that you picked out. Sure. Well, there was a team, uh, Carl Kikafer was a, a team owner back in the fifties, had lots and lots of money, very similar to, uh, to what I would call a modern day Rick Hendrick or Hendrick motorsports type team. He had four teams and sometimes five teams. And this is back in an era when you really just didn't have a huge amount of money in NASCAR, but his, his cars would come in just absolute spit, shined and beautiful cars and had these uh covered uh transport type not quite like we see today but they were transport type trucks that would bring them in 
And this is very foreign to those, like I say, the racers of that era, those guys would pull their cars behind trucks on the ground where he would have the best of equipment, best cars, best drivers. And that created some animosity and maybe a little bit of jealousy among some of the other cars. So his cars were rivals to basically everybody else in the field. Uh, he won championships in 50, 55, 56. And because he basically, uh, he and his drivers, Speedy Thompson, Buck Baker, uh, various Tim Flock, various drivers won championships and he basically won everything and got out. I mean, it was like, okay, I've con conquered that. I've climbed this mountain. I've done all I want to do. And he, he got out. So Carl Keycaper was the team owner, did his thing, got out, created some, uh, you know, some rivalries with other, other drivers and teams. Uh, another one that comes to mind was Lee Petty, who was Richard Petty's father, uh, three-time champion. Uh, and then he and Curtis Turner, who was another uh, moonshiner type driver from the mountains of Floyd, Virginia, he and Lee Petty uh, had rivalries on and off of the, you know, the racetrack, I guess, if you will. And then, of course, Curtis Turner and Joe Weatherly were best of buddies, and they were all the time, you know, partiers. And, you know, Curtis Turner used to say, this party's going to stop and we're going to have another party in 15 minutes. One of those times. <laughs> I mean, he used to say that all the time. And so that's what he would say. And uh, so he would, they would, but they were partiers off the track and they would beat and bang. They were, you know, Turner, Curtis would call Weatherly Pops and Joe would call him Pops. And it wasn't just because of the word Pops. It was because they pop each other on the racetrack all the time. So that's where that term came from. And then, of course, you had Speedy Thompson and, and Herb Thomas back in the in the 50s. And, and basically, as the story goes, Speedy Thompson was driving for Carl Key Kafer in 56 and got into uh, 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 it's kind of a controversial thing. Not sure exactly. You hear it from several sides. But Speedy got into Herb Thomas in, in a race in Shelby, North Carolina that year and got into the fence with her, but basically as, it, as the story goes, I'm not sure wasn't there. don't know several, like I said, several versions here, but uh, got in the fence with Herb Thomas and took the championship by putting him in the fence and, uh, you know, actually made it to where Buck Baker, I think, won the championship for Carl T.K. for by putting Herb in the fence. But again, there's several versions of the story. So let's be clear, but that was a rivalry sort of situation. And, uh, so, you know, Speedy Thompson and Herb Thomas, a rivalry there. So again, there's, a, it goes all the way back to the early days of NASCAR, NASCAR being formed, uh, in 1949, our first strictly stock race in 49. So it goes all the way back to the very beginning. So those are some from the fifties. Again, Kike Furley, Petty and Curtis Turner, Turner Weatherly, Speedy Thompson and Herb Thomas. So it goes all the way back to the very beginning. It almost seemed like it was the same cast of characters in a sense. You know I mean? You yeah. mentioned about Lee Petty several times. You mentioned Curtis Turner several times, Joe Weatherly several times. And kind of, this kind of leads me into my next, uh, or next bullet point. Curtis Turner again, him mm. and Bobby Allison got into it back in the mid sixties uh, at Bowman yeah. Gray. Tell us about yeah. that. One. Well, see, that was a, that was a race. And, and, you know, Bobby and Curtis uh, were rivals, not just in that race, but several years, but see that it wasn't a very long rivalry because sadly we lost Curtis in an airplane crash on October 4th of 1970. So only four years later, but let me paint the picture here. Bobby is uh, at that time uh, about 35, 36 years old, roughly. And so he's coming into the sport rather relatively young. And Curtis, you know, of course, has been there for many years. So, so Curtis is the crafty old veteran and Bobby is the young kid. So now to paint the picture a little deeper here, Bowman Gray is a really small quarter mile track in Winston-Salem, very small, holds about 15, 17,000 people. This is a Saturday night, 1966. Uh, so they're there racing and about the eighth lap, Curtis says, this young Allison kid's in my way. So he puts a bumper to him and spins him out. Well, Bobby didn't take, too kindly to that so he decides 
no worries. I'm going to get him back. So it took him, I think, 100 or so laps to get back to Curtis. So he lays a fender on the old veteran Curtis. Well, <laughs> Curtis is not very happy. So it, David Pearson's in the lead and he's, you know, going out. He leads 200 and some laps. And, but the rate, that's cool. But the rate, the real rivalry, the real thing going on is behind him. It, the people are in the stands are said, oh, this is going to get good. And so they're watching what Bobby's doing. He's feel, you know, threading his way through the field, trying to catch Curtis. Well, he finally catches him and he spins him again. Well, this <laughs> goes on, you know, this is the race within the race. And they, under caution, uh, because Curtis has been spun by Bobby, they beat and bang each other several, several times either under caution. And NASCAR sort of sits back and says, let's see where this is going. They should have reprimanded them immediately. We're like, nah, this is sort of helping the fans get into this. So they sort of sit back and watch. And, you know, Bobby's into Curtis. Curtis comes back around and gets into Bobby. This gets kind of heated <laughs> in, in the middle of the infield. I mean, they're, they've just left the track altogether now. They're in the, in the grass, okay? <laughs> so this this goes on for a while. And, and finally, they exit their cars, and the, some of the fans come out of the stands, and cars get parked, and, you know, this is getting a little out of hand. So finally, they intervene some of the city police come and they get involved and at the end of the day both drivers are ejected well it doesn't matter at this point their cars to beat up they can't race anyway and uh, they're both fined a hundred bucks and and when a hundred dollars and 66 is like 500 okay mm -hmm. that's a lot of money and so uh curtis is driving for junior johnson in one of junior Johnson's cars because junior had retired in 66. So he's now a team owner. And so Bobby's driving his little Chevelle from down in Alabama. So he, you know, he has to load that thing up and put it on a trailer and take it back to Alabama. But the, at the end of the day there, you know, that was more of the story than, than the winner. I think Pearson ended up winning the race that day, but as it turned out, that was the big story. Well, the rivalry continued on for, in the next three or four years until sadly we lost Curtis in a, in an airplane, a private airplane crash. But to put, to put this in perspective, now Tur Turner was one of those John Wayne man's man type guys. You know, he's the kind of guy that he would fly his plane, put it on autopilot, and then he would go back in the back of the plane and take a nap. He, that's, <laughs> that was the way, seriously, that's what he would do. He Curtis Turner one time saw a guy's house in Easley, South Carolina, and remembered, oh, he owes me some moonshine. So he landed on the city street in Easley, South Carolina, and with his airplane. This is not a lie. This is true. Landed the plane and took out some power lines, and the people were coming out of the Methodist church just, you know, about that time. And needless to say, he got reported to the FAA and he lost his license for a while, but this is the kind of guy we're talking about. This is the kind of guy who ran moonshine and oh, he was, he was a wild soul. And so, you, you know, you didn't mess with Curtis, especially on the racetrack. You just didn't do that. Bobby's like, yes, you do. If you're going to wreck my car, I don't have a problem getting into a rivalry with this Curtis guy, whoever he is, one of those types. And so, this went on, of course, until Curtis's death. But, uh, you know, and the famous line from Junior was, he said, I'll tell you what, I'll pay the hundred bucks next time you do this. But next time you do it, you're going to rebuild my race car because I built the car and you're not going to wreck my cars just for this crap on the racetrack. So Junior, needless to say, was not happy. The fact that Curtis, Curtis decided to get into this little scrap this young kid named Allison. And, and ironically, not too many years later, 1972, Bobby ends up driving for junior and then gets into all these rivalries with Richard Petty, which I think is ironic. But anyway, you know, it's just one of those crazy stories that, you know, it went on between Bobby and Curtis until Curtis sadly lost his life in the airplane crash. Right. You know, if there was one rivalry in the 60s that to me was the number one rivalry, and you can probably even make an argument that it was probably one of the all time best rivalries of any era, any decade, whatever way you want to call it, 
it was Richard Petty against David Pearson. And, you know, how many times has, has uh, Richard, you know, complimented David by saying he was the toughest driver I've ever faced and vice versa. Pearson said mm -hmm. the same thing about Richard Petty, but that was a rivalry that it was almost like a, a, a storybook rivalry. It was like a scripted rivalry in a sense that, you know, NASCAR needed a good rivalry at the time they got it for well over a decade. Oh yeah, they sure did. And you know, the, the two, I would say two of the very best, of course, needless to say, Richard Petty, David Pearson. And what was so interesting about it was it, it always came down to this, Jerry. And it wasn't, I mean, it, it just, the way it just worked out 63 times in their careers, they finished first and second to each other. Mm -hmm. And if you think about all the other cars in the field and all these races that they entered together at the end of the day, it came down to the 21 Mercury or the 43 Petty Enterprises Dodge or Plymouth or whatever car Petty, you know, or excuse me, David was running, whether it be Holman Moody or Cotton Owens or whatever, but it would come down to those two guys. And 33 times Pearson would win, and 30 of those times it would be Richard Petty who would win, but 63 times it came down to, to those two guys. And there was only, it was a friendly rivalry though. It wasn't a, a hatred sort of thing. Like you'd see in other rivalries, it was a very friendly one and they had a, an immense respect for each other, but there was only one time. And Richard says this today, there was only one time he got angry with David for, for what happened uh, on the racetrack. And it was the 1974 firecracker 400 at Daytona, July 4th, 1974. And what happened was it came down between the two of them and it was on the final lap. They had just taken the white flag and David knowing the drafting situation at Daytona, he let off the gas pedal and, and he was leading and Richard was second, but he let off so abruptly that Richard scared him because he didn't know what to do. You know, normally in those situations, you sort of gradually let off, mm -hmm. but David let off too quick. And he said, Richard said, I just about nailed him in the back end, erect us both. And so David dropped low, let Richard have the lead. And then they got going into turn one. And I mean, David dropped way back, way back, way back. And, and recently I had a one-on-one -on -one conversation with Richard about several things, but this is one of those things we talked about. And he said, he scared the daylights out of me. He said, I, I just looked up and all of a sudden, I mean, he went from 200 miles an hour to like, you know, nothing. I mean, 80. And all of a sudden I'm on the back end of his Mercury. And I was like, holy cow, what do I do? You know, because he was going to pinch me up against the wall going into one or looking at one. And so, I mean, I just had to, it just really scared me. It caught my attention. So he had to go around him. And they go into one and two and he's like, he's falling back and he's falling back and he's falling back. And it's like, well, he had to have let off intentionally, which he ended up doing. And then all of a sudden, here he comes, you know, and they're going down the back. He said he had to have a, a huge motor in that thing to catch me because I'm going down the back stretch. And all of a sudden he's getting bigger and bigger and bigger in my mirror. And then we get into three and there he's right on my, my bumper. And then when he get in three and four, you know, he drops slow and he just barely nips me at the start finish line. But he said, it really kind of made me angry. And he, you can look at the YouTube tape of the pre or post-race interview with Richard mm -hmm. and he's pretty hot because it's like, he just about wrecked us both. You know, if I, if he had let off a little bit, I would have caught on to what he was doing, but he let off a lot, you know, like he had some kind of engine trouble. Right. And then he come back around me. But I asked him the question, I said, but, but you knew everything there was to know about David Pearson, right? He said, I knew every move the man made because we had raced together so much. There was nothing else to show me. I knew everything that David Pearson would do on the racetrack, except that. And, you know, he, I, that's all he could do that I didn't know about. And, but it did, it, it scared him. That's the only time I think Richard ever got angry with, with David, but they had, immense respect for one another and he was truly sad when when david passed away in 2018 and they were just the very very best of friends 
And but yet the two the two guys that it always seemed to come down to at the end of these big races like Daytona and Talladega and Charlotte and not well not as much Charlotte because they didn't really run together at Charlotte but the big races like Daytonas and the Talladegas and the Michigans and and those types of races it seemed to always come down to to David and and, and Richard and for whatever reason and it was the teams you know the cars and their talents. And they, it was just amazing how many times that it happened between the two of them, but a friendly rivalry, nothing, nothing heated. And I don't know that David ever got upset with, with Richard. Uh, but you, one more thing, Jerry, you got to go back to 1976 Daytona 500 when the two were racing for the win in the 500 and Richard passed him, but got, but come up just a smidge too short and the two crashed. And David had the presence of mind to keep his foot on the clutch and keep the engine running. And that was the difference between winning the 500 in 76 and not winning it because mm -hmm. he didn't stall his engine. But again, it came down to the, the two of them. And it's just amazing how many times that happened. Well, here's the next rivalry. It's like this guy against everybody. And we're talking about <laughs> yeah. Jaws, of course, yeah. Daryl Waltrip. I mean, you know, I've heard a number of stories about Daryl over the years. Um, and, you know, when he came into the sport, yeah, he had a little swagger. Yeah, he was a little cocky, but he was also, you know, he, he, he kind of knew his place early on. But then once the rivalries began, once, you know, the, the, the braggadocio of Daryl Waltrip began, that's when a lot of the rivalries began with him and other drivers. And, you know, you mentioned in, in your list here, a couple of guys, Davey Allison and, um, excuse me, uh, Kale Yarborough. Um, you know, those were two of the, the biggest rivalries that Daryl Waltrip had. Let's talk about Waltrip. And I mean, did he ever really have any friendly rivalries or were they all very, you know, battling rivalries, if you will? I'll be honest with you, Jerry. I don't know of any um friendly ones <laughs> really <laughs> i i don't uh i'm right it's a good question that you ask i can't really think of any friendly ones uh but hey, I, he ben, has several ben, ben daryl walter on line one he wants to talk about it. no i'm just kidding just kidding <laughs> <laughs> yeah i uh I'm, that's a good question i can't really think of any that were happy ones um uh, he just he's the kind of guy that he was he was determined to come into the cup series and make it with the rest of these guys and you know it really made a lot of people mad when he came in because he was like i'm daryl baltrop and i'm coming in and i'm going to basically kick your tail right and he was saying that to pearson allison baker yarborough petty, petty. And it's like, what, what are you talking about? And that's, I mean, he would say in Yarborough and he would say it to them and say, hi, I'm here, move over, either follow lead or get out of the way. And I'm, I'm basically coming in to, to make my mark and you need to move over. And here I am, sorry, but get out of the way. Cause here I am. And that was, it really rubbed some people the wrong way. And, and, and the thing about, uh, the nickname that, that, that Kale Yarbrough gave him, which was Jaws, was it happened about the time the Jaws movies was coming out in the late 70s, 1977. And, you know, that was the movie, in case you didn't know, it was about sharks. And it was, it was, had everybody freaked out in the summer of 77, especially everybody that lived at the beach, because these were hit <laughs> movies. It's like right. Jaws 1, Jaws 2, it might have been Jaws 3. But they were they were frightening movies. You'd go out in the water and these it's three hundred pound, four hundred pound, you know, huge jaws uh, movies. These shark movies had everybody scared to death. I remember, you know, I worked at scooping ice cream at Hilton Head Island, South Carolina, at that summer, and everybody was all freaked out about these things because they could be out there in the water waiting on you to come swimming, you know, and what they say so. Uh, this is the great line that I'll never forget. It was Darlington Southern 500, and it was September 6, 1977. Kale Yarborough, Daryl Waltrip was racing for the lead during this race. And they're doing, going down what was the back stretch at Darlington, and DK Ulrich was a lapped car. 
and they were racing and DK was in the high of the groove and Daryl was behind him and Kale was on the inside and they were going to use DK kind of as a pick, I guess. And Daryl got too anxious and basically nailed the back end of DK's car. And Kale was trying to get around DK and he, uh, Daryl nailed him to the point where he got into Kale and mm-hmm. spent all three of them. And I think Janet Guthrie was also in that race and she got caught up in it. Well, after the race, DK was in the driver's lounge and he was talking to Kale and says, well, you know, I just can't believe you're a great driver, but I can't believe you, you hit me like you did and run and spun me out. He said, well, I didn't hit you. I didn't get you. Jaws got you. He said, what are you talking about? (laughs) And he said, Jaws, Jaws Waltrip, Jaws Waltrip got you. And he said, who Jaws Waltrip. And that, that name stuck because, you know, in the, in two ends of the spectrum, if you ask Kale, how's the car? Oh, the car's great. Well, can you expand on that a little bit? The car's really great. Really great. Right? Yeah. And in the respect of Daryl, can you tell us about the car? How's it going? He would, you know, 10 minutes later, he's still talking about the chassis. That's the difference in the two. Okay. And so that's what Kale tagged him as Jaws. So from then on, everybody called him Jaws to the point where Humpy Wheeler later in the year at Charlotte hired a wrecker and he got a buddy of his at Myrtle beach and got a small shark and got a, hung a big chicken on the end of the hook of this, uh, wrecker truck and put the shark holding, you know, the, the chicken there. And it was because Holly farms was Kale's sponsor and he had the shark eating the chicken. And of course the sponsor didn't like it all that much, but Humpy got a bigger charge out of it because he thought it was cool. And so he drove that around during the pace laps, cannot make this stuff up. <laughs> so, you know, it's just a marketing scheme, but it was because of this jaws versus the chicken thing. And it was the rivalry between Kale and between Daryl. And of course, it, it, Humpy said it got to the point where the shark started to smell so bad. They had to get rid of it in the, in the October heat, you know, around the on pit road there, but it was just, again, it was about this thing that happened at Darlington and the rivalry between Kale and Daryl. And it, he got on everybody's nerves and in, <laughs> in the beginning of it all. And it was about this stupid rivalry about, I'm going to go in there and kick everybody's butt. And I'm going to be the greatest of all time. Just like the Muhammad Ali. I'm the greatest, yep, yep, yep. You, know, you know, float like a butterfly sting, like a bee. And that was exactly Daryl. And he just rubbed everybody. And he did go on to win 84 races and three championships. And he was a great driver, but his approach was move over and get out of the way. Here I come. You know, and, and, and that was, that was what people hated about him, but it was also what people loved about him. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, exactly right. and, you know, the thing is that, that Daryl, you know, I, I had a chance to talk with him last year uh, sometime. And, you know, we kind of, alluded to you know the glory days you know the the days that he you know won the three championships all the race wins and that kind of thing and he did kind of admit that there was times where he he himself even thought he was over the top but at the same time i ca- i don't think you could find anybody or at least very 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 few people in nascar today that would have a bad word to say about daryl walter yeah no. back in the back in the day yeah maybe but today no no, absolutely. Daryl's one of my very best friends and I love him dearly. And I think, I, I think he's great. And I think he was great for the sport. I think he was great for the sport when it needed to have somebody like that in there that, uh, would, would generate excitement about, right. uh, you know, uh, the, what we were doing on the racetrack. There was even a time and he even laughs about it today, but there's a time where fans booed him so much. He said, well, if you don't like it, meet me at the, at the parking lot of the Kmart. <laughs> And, and as it turned out, Kmart ended up being as one of his last sponsors and that kind of haunted him a little bit, but, you know, I just love the guy. I mean, he's somebody I can call any day and say, Hey, Daryl, what are you doing? And, Oh, I'm cleaning out my gutters or I'm, I'm on the golf course or I'm whatever. And we'll, he'll make time for me anytime to just talk about the good old days and, 
he'll he'll offer advice or you know we'll just talk about family and i mean he's a great great friend and i love him and he's wonderful and and you know i mean i just i think back on a lot of that and the time that he spent in the sport i was a you know a teenager during the height of the gatorade days and the jaws days and all that and he i think he brought a great charisma to the sport i think at a time when we needed it really and he was fresh and different and nobody knew what to do with him you know what i mean it was it was just wonderful to have that kind of personality at a time and i think the sport really needed it exactly well you know obviously daryl had uh, you know his own run-ins with um you know sadly in the waning year well last couple of years of davy allison's life before we lost yeah. davy in this tragic crash but Davey, you know, not only had, um, you know, the, the rivalry with Daryl, he also had a pretty big, big rivalry with Jeff Bodine uh, back in 89. Let's talk about that one as well, too. Well, yeah, too. I, and I, I want to back up slightly just a minute. I think the thing that, that Davey kind of had with Daryl was it was sort of a spillover because of the rivalry that Bobby had with Daryl, his dad right. had with Daryl, because that was, and you know, see, and that's the funny thing about it. Daryl and Bobby got along great when Bobby, uh, I mean, when Daryl kind of got into the cup series early on in 73, four, five, uh, 72 actually was Daryl's first year. And then when Daryl started winning and it, it kind of, it kind of went South between Bobby and Daryl. And then in 1981, when he joined junior Johnson, and became a championship competitor to Bobby, then it didn't go well at all. And in 81, 82, 83 was the very intense years between Bobby and Daryl as far as championships go. And Daryl uh, won the championship in 1981 and 82, and Bobby was his chief rival for those championships. And Bobby ended up winning in 83. Bobby was with Diegard Racing. Daryl was with Junior Johnson and Associates. Mm -hmm. And it was very intense between the three, uh, the two of them. And so talking about Davey, I just think it sort of spilled over uh, between because of some, maybe some things that happened between Bobby and Daryl. Right. And then right. it spilled over with Davey. But yeah, I mean, you know, and you think back on what happened at Pocono uh, in 1992 when Bobby, I mean, excuse me, when Daryl got into Davey um, and had that horrific crash. Now, you know, I, who knows? I don't, I, I'm certain that Daryl didn't do that on purpose. I, you know, no racer is going to do that to any other racer and put him in that kind of harm's way. I don't believe that for a minute. I think it was two drivers going for the same piece of real estate. And I just, I can't imagine Daryl would do something like that. I really don't. And as it turned out, uh, you know, uh, Davy's car got airborne and flipped eight or 10 or 12 times. And, you know, fortunately Davy was, he was hurt, but not bad hurt, but I don't believe for a minute that that happened to where they, you know, uh, Daryl would do something intentional like that. I really, I know he wouldn't do that. Exactly. Well, what about Davy and Jeff Bodine? That was another good rivalry. Too. Yeah. That, that was just something I, I want to put that one in. I don't know how many other times they really got into each other, but I, I sort of placed that when I had it on my list, but I sort of placed that one in a one race category. That was the 1989 Daytona 500 where Jeff got into there to Davey. Davey may have gotten into Jeff. Not sure. Wasn't riding along on that day, but uh, Davey got upside down, went into the embankment that separates the backstretch from Lake Lloyd there at Daytona and flipped the car uh, and nursed the car back to pit road and Robert Yates and the Yates racing crew put a new windshield in it and spent about four rolls of duct tape on that 28 car and got it taped up enough to where it could continue racing. But I do know that they had words after the race, uh, in the garage area and it got into a little bit of a shoving match. I know Jeff tried to talk to Davey and Davey didn't want to hear it and, don't know exactly what happened back there. I think Davey claimed that he'd come down on him and uh, I don't know exactly what happened, but it was some pretty heated words afterward. And that's like I say, the day that Davey flipped the car. And I just remember taking the windshield out and the Chrome around the windshield off and just tape, 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 tape. And 
got him back into it, but I admire Davey for being able to drive the thing back to pit road and uh, taping it up. Exactly. What about, and this is going to, uh, we're going to get in, we're getting near the finish line here for today's episode of the podcast, but a, a podcast about rivalries would never, ever, ever be complete without the intimidator, Dale Earnhardt. And yeah. he had a number of rivalries, uh, both on and off the racetrack, but two guys in particular that we want to talk about. Um, one was Ricky Rudd, and then the other one, of course, was Jeff Gordon. Let's talk about Ricky Rudd and Dale Earnhardt Sr. Okay. first. I mean, they had a really not only a strong rivalry, but it was an enduring rivalry as well. Yeah. Too. yeah, I think so. And I think it really, in my opinion, I think it really stemmed from him getting in the, in the, when I say him, I mean, Earnhardt getting in the three car in 1984. I think, I think Ricky really wanted to stay in the three car after winning at, at Martinsville on September 25th, 1983. And he had also won at Riverside in June of 83. And I think they were building something. And then as it turned out, uh, Ricky wanted to stay in the three car, but Earnhardt got in the three car for 84. And I think that may have had something to do with it maybe. And I don't know. It, uh, that's just my opinion. And then, you know, Ricky went on to Bud Moore uh for 84 and went on to kitty bernstein and on that direction but you know and then there was a race in 1989 i believe where he was driving for kenny bernstein and they got into some issues at wilkes north wilkesboro but you know here's the thing earnhardt was he had the mentality that if you're in front and i'm not then i'm you know you're my rival i mean you know, that was the way Earnhardt thought. It's like, if I'm supposed to be in front and you're not, and that's just the way it is. And, uh, so he was very intense about his driving and his racing and, you know, talk going back to, to Bodine again. I mean, there was an incident at Charlotte Motor Speedway, May 29th, 1988, where he and Jeff Bodine got into problems there again, not sure whose fault that was. Earnhardt claimed it was, Bodine said, kept pushing him and hitting him, pushed him into the wall. And as it turned out, Earnhardt got a five lap penalty from NASCAR, uh, parked him on pit road. And that got very intense. And Bodine went to the garage, uh, very heated words were exchanged on that one. Uh, maybe not to each other, but separately. And, uh, but uh, yeah, Earnhardt got parked for five laps and that, that continued for years, you know, between the two of them, um, uh, he had a special nickname for him. <laughs> uh, so anyway, uh, anyway, I, you know, it's the, these things and it happens, uh, you know, every time you complete a lap and you're fighting 200 miles an hour against somebody and it's tense and it's intense and it's, uh, you know, the, like I said, at the beginning of the show, it's just a lot of, uh, heated exchanges that's going on every, every week and, you know, payback it's going to be coming sometime and it, it just builds and builds and builds like Lego blocks and until finally it comes to a head and sometimes you got to do what you got to do, I guess. But, uh, yeah, it's Earnhardt had, uh, several, several rivals during his career and, but he was very, very intense behind the wheel and every, let's say this too, everybody has their own perspective. If you, no matter what, every coin has two sides, right? right? And right. so, Yes, that's the way you have to look at it. So, but it makes cool. it makes it exciting. Let's put it that way. Well, let's let's wrap up the the um, you know the rivalry segment today. We still have to talk about the um, the number sixty four, but you know, the, let's wrap up the rivalry segment with what I would consider was the equivalent in the nineties of what the sixties were between Richard Petty and David Pearson, and I'm talking about in the nineties. Dale Earnhardt and Jeff Gordon. I mean, here's the young, fresh-faced kid out of Indiana, comes into NASCAR, and, you know, uh, Dale did not take very kindly to Jeff. And Jeff, to his credit back then, he was very respectful of not only Earnhardt, but all the other drivers around him, from what I recall. Um, he kind of laughed off some of the 
uh, intimidating factors that that uh, Earnhardt tried to do. Uh, he laughed off some of the comments that Earnhardt made. And I think that in Jeff doing that, and I mean that in a good nature way, when, he, when I say he laughed some of those comments off, it only seemed to infuriate Earnhardt more and it made the rivalry all the more intense. But yes. on the flip side, though, they were actually friends off the racetrack, which is yeah, the were. weirdest dichotomy there is, you know? Yeah, they were. And they, they were even business partners off right, the racetrack. Right, right. Yeah, they were. And and I think, you know, I think Earnhardt had a great deal of respect to, I know he did, for for Jeff, for what he accomplished uh, off on the racetrack and off the racetrack and gave him a great deal of advice, too about life in general and of course sort of took him under his wing in the early years and said you do want to do this and you don't want to do that you need to trust me on this sort of like a father figure in a lot of ways and some things jeff did listen to him on and some things he didn't but see the thing about earnhardt he had this incredible incredible sense of knowing what was right and what was wrong and he could he was a visionary and he could tell you way way ahead of what was going to happen I don't know. I can't explain it, but he was so good at that kind of thing. Cause he knew exactly he was a visionary. That's the best word. As I said before, he, he knew exactly what was going to come down the pike before it happened. Well, you know, and, I mean, to, yeah. to, to kind of lead into, I mean, to kind of bolster, bolster that um, I, I don't remember who it was. I want to say it was Tom Higgins of the Charlotte observer. I may be wrong on that, but they equated Earnhardt to a chess player. He was mm-hmm. the chess player of NASCAR because like you're saying, he could see moves, not just a few hundred feet ahead of him. He could see moves two, three, four, five laps ahead of him. And that was big, yeah. a big thing too. Well, yeah, on the track, but, but also in life in general, I mean, he could tell you things that were going to happen a month or two down the road or six months down the road that a business wise or something to that effect. He said, how do you know that's going to happen that way? I said, you just need to trust me on this. It's going yeah. to happen. He he was, he sort of had a crystal ball or something. He just knew. And then sure enough, that's exactly what was going to happen. But I think one of the coolest lines in, in that he came up with a couple of things I can mention real quick. One was when he won the brickyard 400 at Indianapolis in 1995, he said, well, it just feels so good to be the first man to win it. <laughs> you <know? laughs> and, you know, Jeff had won it in 94. And he said, it's just so cool to be the first man to win the brickyard, you know, stuff. And then, of course, when uh, the first time that Jeff won the championship, I think in 95, uh, of course, he, Earnhardt, and this is really cool, Earnhardt uh, had a waiter come out and serve him a glass of milk versus a, a, a glass of champagne. He toasted him with milk because again, you know, he was a little boy, you know, yep, stuff like yep, there's yep. things that there's things that he put in your head that, you know, I'm just, I'm just jabbing you a little bit, you know, and, and in the same way and changing the subject slightly, but the same way in 1990, when his car at Atlanta was junk, the three cars, and they were having trouble getting the car to perform. And Mark Martin was his closest rival for the championship. Instead of working and thrashing all over the three car, he pulls out an aluminum lawn chair, props his feet up on the back of that three car and takes a nap. (laughs) And that does, and the final practice session, and that does more psyche to the, to the Mark Martin and the six than they could ever do. And they worked on it during the race and won the championship. That's the kind of thing Earnhardt would do. He'd get in your head and it was, it was brilliant because they knew we can fix it during the race. Let's not show them what we got. He ran five or six laps in the car. It wasn't junk. That was too harsh. It was just not right. And he said, let's just work on it tomorrow. Let's just, let's just play with them. And he put a cover over it, put his feet up on the, the spoiler and took a nap in the garage and there's like, Oh crap. They're just so much better than we are. Well, they weren't, but that's, that was Earnhardt. And so going back to Jeff, he would just do stuff like that to him, but he gave him a huge amount of advice, fatherly advice about life in general, some things I know about that I can't share, but it was just cool that he cared about him that much, even though he was beating him on the racetrack, he still cared about him a lot. And 
it's just the way Earnhardt was. He was, see, all this man in black stuff was great. All this intimidator stuff was great, but he was a great human being. Mm-hmm. I mean, now he had, a, we've all got our faults and I've got mine and you've got yours and all that, but he was a great person and he, he cared about people a lot and he, he saw what potential Jeff had and he knew he was going to be a great champion. And that's why he thought of him as he did and went into business with him and did some things with him. So good place to stop. Exactly. Exactly. Well, before we wrap up today's episode, we have what well, we always do every single episode, every single week, we equate the episode number with a number car number and Today, obviously, is episode number 64, so we're going to talk about car number 64, and, you know, I was kind of surprised. This car has actually been in quite a few races. I was actually shocked at the number of starts it's had, but tell us about the 64, and, and I mean, um, you know, your thoughts about the fact that it's it's won twice, but it hasn't won since 1966? Wow. Yep. 1966, and... Uh... There's a gentleman by the name of Elmo Langley who mm-hmm. won it uh, in on June 4th, 1966 at Piedmont, South Carolina, a little dirt track there. And also July 7th, 1966 at Manassas, Virginia. And the first time the car started in a NASCAR race was June, I'm sorry, July 10th, 1949 by Benny George Georgeson was the name. Uh, at the beach and road course at Daytona beach. He finished 27th in the 28 car field. And we don't know where he started because it wasn't in the log, but uh, it was 164 mile race and 40 laps. And it's like a 4.2 mile road course. So, um, there you go. But what is the trivia question that I want to ask you is about, about Elmo Langley? What other job did he have in NASCAR history other than driving? Do you know? I wait, 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 wait. (laughs) Elmo was director of officials, if I remember Mm, correctly. He was close. You're close. He was actually the pace car driver in NASCAR for many years. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. In the in the 80s and 90s. And sadly, we lost Elmo uh to a heart attack. He was actually at the first Japan race. Uh, in 1996, I believe, um, when we went over to Suzuka, Japan, and we sadly lost him to, he suffered a heart attack while there in Japan. Uh, but he was a longtime NASCAR driver, many years, drive number 64, and he always drove Fords. Hmm. And they were green. And David Pearson would not park beside him in the garage area because his car was green. That's right. There was that superstition. You're right. Exactly. He always said, you cannot park my number 21 Wood Brothers Mercury beside Elmo because his car is green. <laughs> that was a true story. So they'd always have to park Pearson in another, another garage stall. So wow. there's your little track fact. But yeah, Elmo was a fine man and really enjoyed knowing him. And he drove race cars for many years. And then when he retired from driving, he became NASCAR's pace car driver. Well, you know, the thing that kind of surprised me, Ben, about this number 64 is that it's made 951 starts. It only has the two wins that you mentioned about Elmo Langley back in both coming in 1966, had 62 top fives, 209 top tens and two poles. And yet we have never seen it in victory lane in what's it been uh, almost what 60 years almost now mm-hmm. i mean yep. what, what what is it i mean was that car, car number just jinx i mean i'm looking at racing reference and the last time the number 64 uh, uh, car raced was landon castle in 2010 he raced uh, um well actually uh, now i'm looking at like i'm looking at this the wrong way here so in 2010 there were a number of drivers who raced that car uh, and, and that was the last year the 64 appeared in NASCAR Cup racing. We had Tony Raines, Todd Bodine, the immortal Chad McCombie, uh, Todd Bodine again, Landon Castle, and Jeff Green. So there were a number of drivers that drove, drove that number, but we have not seen it on a racetrack since then. That's 12 years la- 12 years ago. So uh, mm-hmm. just another one of those numbers where it just kind of got lost in the shuffle, I guess. Yeah, and, you know, sometimes the numbers do, and I've mentioned this several times on the podcast, uh, a lot of drivers like the one through 10 numbers because they say those are the numbers 
that are the ones that win the most. Uh, but, you know, you can't argue that uh, point too much because 43 has 200 wins. But a lot of the a lot of the drivers just like the single-digit numbers, and uh, they say that that's the mo- ones that are the luckiest. So right. that's something I've always heard. So, well, we'll but the 99 is one lot, and it, it, it depends on who you ask. But that's been a long-time tradition and a lot of the older drivers love the single numbers exactly all right well that's going to put a wrap on episode number 64 of a lifetime in nascar podcast he's ben white i'm jerry bunkowski hope you enjoyed today's episode and the rivalries we there's so many more rivalries we can talk about i mean going back from the 50s 60s 70s 80s and 90s and, and there's still a lot of rivalries going on today i mean they may they may not be as pronounced or as you know out there as the ones back in the day, but still rivalries are very important in NASCAR. So Ben, uh, any final thoughts uh, on your end about uh, rivalries about episode 64? And of course we have episode 65 coming up next week as well. Well, uh, One one final comment. I just forgot to tell you about that. I love this comment. 1965, there was a crash between Curtis Turner and Bobby Isaac and Curtis gets out of his car and goes back to Bobby. And this is at Martinsville. He says, why did you crash me? And Bobby uh, Isaac says, I didn't crash you. I don't even know you. <laughs> I'll never forget that. So he just, Curtis turned around, walked back to his car, and, uh, put his helmet in his car and walked to the garage. It is I, did, I didn't crash you. I don't even know you. And I bet, I bet Curtis kind of felt two inches small. Or uh, I guess. So, so the moral of the story is I have to know you to crash you, I guess. Well, you know, I, I, I'm curious you know, since we <laughs> talked about him earlier, what would have happened if that was the same situation, but instead of Curtis Turner, it was Daryl Waltrip? I would, I would oh. have loved to see how that would have played oh. out. <laughs> I don't know. They would have been talking all the way to the garage here. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> explaining the situation to the garage That's right. Here. That's right. All right. Well, that's going to put a wrap on episode number 64 of a Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. He's Ben White. I'm Jerry Bunkowski. Like I said, I hope you all enjoyed uh, today's episode, and we'll be back with episode 65 next week. And you're just going to have to tune in to, talk, to find out what we're going to be talking about because we got a lot more to talk about every single week here, right here on the Lifetime of NASCAR podcast. So for Ben White, I'm Jerry Benkowski. Have a good week, everyone. We'll talk to you next week right, right here on the Lifetime of NASCAR podcast. Eric Estep here. This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries. Get it done with green. Forney offers a full line of welding and plasma cutting machines, metalworking accessories, and more. For do-it-yourselfers all the way to professional metalworkers, Forney has everything you need for your next project. Shop Forney's top-of-the-line products at forneyind.com. That's Forney, F-O-R-N-E-Y, ind, I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you.